text will be from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 7. Let's stand in honor of reading of God's word. This chapter 2, 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And pray again. Father, thank you for your word, and as it was just read, we now ask for your spirit's power to give us understanding and to give us hearts ready to accept it. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week, as I'm sure many of you know, was the start of the Winter Olympics being hosted in South Korea, and if you got a chance to watch the opening ceremony on Friday, you witnessed, I would argue, a snapshot of heaven. You caught a glimpse of Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7 verse 9 describes in heaven, quote, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I mean, really, where, where else on earth do you see such a grand assembly of, of peoples, nations, and languages all standing together in unity for a common purpose? Only, only once, every couple of years, do you have the literal world gathered together like this. I think it's beautiful. And of course, though, it's only a shadow. It's only a shadow of a, of a greater future reality this Revelation 7 vision. Church, does that move you? Is your heart warmed by the image of the world coming together? And I'm not talking here about the Olympics, but about this eschatological vision of all the nations, all the tribes, all the peoples and languages of the earth worshiping together before the throne of the Lamb. Scripture makes clear that this is where all of history is headed. We are all headed this way. If you are a Christian, this will be your reality. This will be your personal experience. You will be part of that great multitude that no one can number. You will be worshiping the Lamb of God with every nation and every tribe and every tongue. So I ask again, does that move you? Does that excite you? Now, if you're thinking, yes, but probably not as much as it should, well, just know that you're in the same boat as the rest of us, and as most churches. We know this future is coming, and yet most of us, we just don't feel 
the weight of it, and it doesn't move us as we know it probably should. And that, my friends, that is why the Apostle Paul wrote what he did here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He tells us that we need to make it a priority, a priority to have a global-minded vision when we gather every Sunday to worship God. He pushes back against our fleshly tendency to grow insular, to get all self-absorbed with with the concerns of our own tribe. Paul knows how easy it is for a body of believers to get so caught up with their own issues that they forget and they lose sight of the greater world around them. And so that's why here in chapter 2, and chapter 2 is all about how a church rightly orders its public worship when they gather like this, Paul begins here with an emphasis And his emphasis, his stress, is on praying these big, global, missional prayers for all kinds of people. That is the emphasis of our text. If you look at verse 1, it begins with these words. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, that term there, first of all, That doesn't mean first, as in chronologically first, in a whole list of instructions I'm about to give you. It really there means of first importance. This is the most important thing for a church to do when it gathers together. It is to pray. That is of first importance. And I'm going to argue that Paul pictures churches praying big missional prayers to a big missional God. That's his emphasis. Now, as we've been in this series in 1 Timothy, we've noted that the key verse of this letter, the the, the verse that unlocks the very purpose of Paul writing this letter to his disciple Timothy is found in chapter 3, verse 15. Just turn there with me and see for yourself. Chapter 3, Verse 15, Paul says he left Timothy in Ephesus to put this fledgling church into order. And he says he intends to return, but if he's delayed, this letter he's writing provides instructions for how, quote, one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, in chapter 1, we're told that false teachers have crept in, and they were diverting people's attention away from their outward mission as the church, and instead they were pouring so much time and, and so much energy inwardly, debating endless genealogies and speculations, and all the while, all the while, peoples of the world around them are lost and dying without Jesus. They have yet to hear the truth of the gospel. And yet that's the very mission of the church. As Paul puts it, the church is to be a a pillar of the truth. And as we explained before, these ancient pillars were intended to not just hold up beautiful, ornate roofs, but to hold it out, to, to hold it out high in the sky for all to see, for lost travelers who are still a long way off to be able to see their destination out there in the distance, to see where their true home lies, whether they recognize it or not. That's our mission, to be a pillar 
of the truth, of, of the gospel of God's grace to save sinners in spite of their sinfulness because of the righteousness and self-sacrifice of his son. Our job is to take that gospel and hold it up and hold it out. And the point of of verses 1 to 7 is that we hold it out, not just to some people, not just to those who are conveniently around us, not just to those who we're comfortable with, but no, we are to hold it out to all peoples, to every tribe, to every tongue. And so as we go through this text, I want to explain what kind of prayers we ought to be praying. I want to explain what makes our prayers missional. If you want to follow along, look in your Look in your uh, bulletin, you'll see an outline there, and we're going to look at five aspects of missional prayers. We're going to consider the target of our missional prayers, the plea within our missional prayers, the heart prompting these missional prayers, the burden behind the missional prayers, and finally the end of our missional prayers. So let's begin by looking at the target of our missional prayers. When we gather as a church to pray, who should we be praying for? Who is our target? That's the question in mind when we evaluate the prayer life of our church, when we examine our own prayers, the ones we make privately, the ones we make publicly together. And the answer to that, to who are we praying for, can be very convicting. Now, before we see Paul's answer to this question of who to be praying for, notice he mentions four kinds of prayers, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. I I really don't think we gain much from trying to parse out the differences between each. His main point here is that these various kinds of prayers should be made for all people at the end of verse 1. And that is a little different. To say these prayers should be made for all people is a little different than saying that I want you to pray for everyone. The, 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 the term everyone is there if you're using the NIV, the older, the original NIV. I, I don't think everyone is probably the best English translation there. In other words, what I'm saying here is that Paul's not focusing on praying for every particular person in the world. You know, when I was younger, uh, when I was younger in the faith, I remember actually praying, God, please save everyone in the world. Amen. And I thought that was ingenious, right? Because with one simple blanket prayer, I could cover seven billion people in a matter of seconds. I was so efficient with my time, so efficient with my prayer life. Now, you know, there's nothing wrong with actually praying that, but here, Paul was not urging us to pray blanket prayers for every single person in the world. When he says to make prayers for all people, he has in mind all kinds of people. And we know this because in verse 2, he goes on to give us a subcategory of all people. One kind of people we are to pray for are kings and all who are in high position. So what he's doing here is he's instructing the church to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. He is telling the church in Ephesus, don't just pray for your family. Don't just pray for your tribe, for for people that you know. Pray for people you don't know, especially for those who rule over you. 
Don't just pray for fellow Ephesians. Pray for those Corinthians in Corinth. Don't just pray for Jews. Pray for Gentiles. Don't just pray for free persons. Pray for slaves. Don't just pray for good people. Pray for the wicked and immoral. Pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of peoples in this world. And so church, we should evaluate our own practice. When we pray, especially when we pray together in service or in small group or at prayer meetings, who are we praying for? Are we only praying for ourselves? For people like us? For people we like? Do we pray for the salvation and flourishing of people who look different, talk different, and think different than us? Are we praying for the nations, the peoples of the world? Are we praying for the global church and for global ministries that we'll never participate in, we'll never benefit from, yet are we still praying for them? Who are we targeting when we pray together? Now, I think it's interesting that Paul goes on to specify to pray for, quote, kings and all who are in high position. I'm sure he had in mind the Roman emperor, the Roman Senate. And for us today, we can apply that to any politician or any legislator in position to make decisions, to, to form public policies that are going to affect the rest of us. Now, friends, I, I realize in a politically charged environment like we live today, where our society is so sharply divided along partisan lines, lines and we're so deeply entrenched in political camps, I know it feels strange for me to stand here and to say that the Bible is commanding us to pray for President Trump, for our legislative and judicial bodies, for our governor, Greg Abbott, for our mayor, Sylvester Turner, for our city council, for, for all of our, our district school boards. And if you can't swallow the idea of praying for any of those leaders, you just have to keep in mind that when Paul said kings here, he had in mind wicked rulers like Nero, who was in power at the time. And history tells us that Nero was the kind of king who would make sport out of feeding Christians to lions. Nero was the king in charge when Paul himself was finally martyred. So don't say you can't pray for Trump if Paul could pray for Nero. We need to adopt Paul's belief and God's providence over who's in office and who's in charge. He believed that whoever the emperor was, he was placed in a position of influence by divine providence, and so therefore he needs prayer. So if it's not already a habit in your prayer life, privately or publicly, let's include prayers for those in high positions of governmental authority. And, and don't just pray for Christian politicians. Not just for the ones we voted for, the ones we agree with. No, here we see in Scripture we are to pray for all of them. So the target of our missional prayers is all kinds of people, particularly those in authority over us. That's who we should be praying for. Now let's, let's move on and consider what we should be praying for when we lift them up to God. Let's look at the plea within our missional prayers. The plea. Now I'm going to argue that 
when Paul is telling the church to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, his focus specifically is on their salvation. And why am I so sure the plea is for their salvation? It's because, it's because of what he says in verses 3 and 4. You see, verses 1 and 2, is te- he's telling the church to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And then look in verse 3, he says, this is good. What's good? This, this kind of praying is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Why? Why is that? Because in verse 4, he's the kind of God that desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so by implication, the prayers being urged in verse 1 are particularly prayers for salvation. They're missional prayers pleading for the salvation of all kinds of lost people in this world. Now, we should apply that by also praying for those kings and those in high position, praying for their salvation. But more specifically, verse 2 goes on to say what we are to plead for when we are praying for these leaders, these governmental authorities. Look at verse 2. We pray for these leaders that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, what does that mean? Is Paul suggesting to pray for these leaders with the hope that they will govern in such a way as to make our lives easier and more comfortable? Are we praying for them to make good policies that strengthen the economy, that secure our 401ks? What are we praying for? Now, I think when Paul mentions a peaceful and quiet life here, most commentators believe that he is referring to what is known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. You have to remember that the Roman Empire was really a conglomeration of many nations and many tribes who shared a long history of conflict and war with each other. But under Roman rule, a relative peace was established and it was enforced throughout the empire. And that, that Pax Romana, that providentially allowed for the advancement of the gospel throughout the entire Roman Empire. I mean, really, Paul's missionary journeys would not have been so plentiful and so expansive if not for this relative peace. Because when the peace is disrupted or destroyed, like in times of war or civil strife, or if there's systematic persecution, the gospel's progress from city to city to city gets hindered, gets suppressed. And so what Paul is saying here is pray for these leaders. Pray for them to lead our nation towards peace so that Christians can live godly and dignified lives and go about bearing strong witness for the gospel. That's the intent. And so church, let's let's think about how we ought to be praying for our leaders Let's pray for our leaders and their leadership to promote a kind of peace that permits the free advancement of the gospel in our land. Let's pray for our religious freedoms to be protected. Pray that Christians can continue to speak and to live out our biblical convictions without fear of legal repercussion. Let's pray that parents are respected as as the primary authorities in the education of their own children, discipling them with biblical teachings and values without government interference. Let's pray that we can continue to gather freely in open to worship Jesus without threat of persecution. 
Yes, these are privileges we enjoy now, but there is no guarantee for the future. And at the same time, there are plenty of churches around the world who lack these very freedoms and protections. And so let's pray for the global church. Let's pray for the persecuted church, our brothers and sisters around the world. You may have noticed that every week we include within our bulletin an insert from Open Doors Ministry highlighting the top 50 countries where it is most dangerous to follow Jesus. You look in your bulletin, you'll see this week it's Laos. Let's make a habit of using that weekly insert in our prayer lives. Use it during your prayer time with your family, with your small group. Let's pray for these countries' leaders, whether they have kings or prime ministers or presidents or just dictators, Let's pray for God to providentially guide them to rule in such a way that allows the gospel to spread more freely in that land. Let's pray for the world. And so we've covered the target and the plea of our missional prayers. Now let's move and consider the heart, the heart that is prompting our missional prayers. Really we're asking What's the motivation here? What's prompting us to pray all kinds of prayers for the salvation of all kinds of lost people around the world? And the answer is the heart of God. The heart of God. What prompts our missional prayers is the missional heart of God. That's what Paul highlights in verses 3 to 4. He shines a spotlight on God's heart for the lost. Just look at verse 3 again. Why is this good? Why is it good and pleasing to God when Christians gather together to pray big prayers with big concerns for big groups of people? Look at verse 4. Because God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So why should we pray missional prayers for all kinds of peoples? Because God desires all peoples to be saved. Because such prayers reflect his missional heart. Now, I know this raises a theological difficulty for us, if you think about it. If God desires all people to be saved, then is Paul suggesting that every single person in the world will eventually be saved? I mean, we know he's trying to push back against an insular, elitist mentality where we only care about the salvation of just a few people. But in reaction, did Paul suddenly fall, fall victim to the opposite extreme of universalism? Is he teaching that all will eventually be saved? Well, no, I, I, we know Paul doesn't actually believe in that because we know he, he doesn't believe all will be saved because later on in the letter, he says that some will face judgment, some will face destruction. You look in chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 24, chapter 6, verse 9, he acknowledges there will be those who face judgment for their sins. And so I don't think he's suggesting that God's, and at the same time, I don't think he's suggesting here that God's desires could ever be thwarted by human self-will. And so I don't believe he's teaching universalism or just suggesting that God wants everyone to be saved and yet his will is thwarted. I think the best way 
to understand verse 4 is to interpret those words, all people, just like we did back in verse 1. Remember, just as we said, prayer for all people didn't mean that in prayer we have to address every single person in the world, but rather we are praying for all kinds of people in the world. And so likewise, Paul is referring to God's desire here for all kinds of people, all kinds of people in the world to be saved. Just think back to that Revelation 7 vision. Before the Lamb, there is going to be a multitude so great that no one can count that high. And coming from every nation, every tribe, and in in a thousand million, billion tongues, Jesus will be worshipped with the praise that he is due from all kinds of saved people. Church, have we caught this global vision? Now, I realize, I realize we're a Chinese immigrant church, and you might be wondering to yourself, how can you harmonize praying these big, all-inclusive prayers for all kinds of people while simultaneously worshiping in a church identified specifically by one nation, one tribe? Seems a bit inconsistent there. But you've, if you've heard me preach enough, you've heard me in the past always being an advocate for Chinese churches to maintain a clear vision to reach Chinese immigrants. Our Chinese-speaking members have a unique missional advantage in preaching the gospel and discipling the great number of Chinese immigrants that God is still bringing into our city. There is still a missional need for Chinese churches in a city as diverse as Houston. But at the same time, you have heard me argue on more than one occasion that English-speaking congregations of Chinese immigrant churches that have grown to a level of maturity and stability like ours, that we, I'm talking about us here in this congregation, we have a biblical responsibility and a missional opportunity to expand the Chinese church's gospel influence beyond our own tribe. All of us, all of us in the Chinese church, whether you're on the, on the Chinese or English side, I think all of us should want to enlarge in our hearts to desire the salvation of all kinds of peoples from all nations and tribes. That kind of heart should be driving and shaping our prayer lives. That's, that's, that's a command for all of us. But I think an English-speaking congregation like ours has a responsibility to go beyond just praying, beyond just praying for the salvation of all kinds of people, to actually doing something about it, to intentionally build relationships with the various kinds of lost people that God has put in our lives. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter what they sound like. It doesn't matter if they think like us. If God has put them in your life, you reach out to them with the gospel and to share the gospel with them in hope that they themselves might come to a knowledge of the truth. And then to not just reach out to them in the workplace or in the classroom, but then to welcome them into your life, welcome them into your church community. 
And if that requires making changes in order to be more sensitive and hospitable to the needs and interests of these new people, then so be it. Church, are, are, are we a church aimed at ourselves or at others? Is our God merely a village deity that we serve really in hopes that ultimately he'll serve our own interests? Or is the God we worship a God of all peoples, tribes, and tongues? Many of you are aware that your elders and pastors have been a long process of vision casting for the future of this church. And no matter what you think about the ideas that we've been working on, you have to understand that this missional heart of God for all peoples is what's driving our vision. We can debate the details, we can tweak those details, but we stand firm on this heart. We need to have God's heart for all kinds of people to be saved, and not just to pray about it. We have a duty to do something about it. To sit on our hands because change is too hard or uncomfortable is no excuse before a missional God like ours. As you can tell, this is a burden that I strongly feel. And I want, to, I want you to feel it too. I want you to see where this burden comes from. And so I lead us to our fourth point. The fourth, fourth point here is this burden behind our missional prayers. So let me explain this burden that I'm referring to. I'm talking about, friends, the burden we feel when we truly believe that there is no other Savior for the lost besides Jesus. If you're, listen, if you're open to the possibility that there might be other saviors, other gospels, other religions out there that can save people, well then the burden, this sense of urgency and responsibility for others, for the nations, quickly vanishes from us. Perhaps they'll find some other way to get to God. But Paul explains why this is foolish thinking. Look at verse 5. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is saying that salvation is found in Christ alone. But friends, you need to understand that the exclusiveness of our gospel in Christ alone is the very thing that compels us on this inclusive mission to go out and spread the gospel to all peoples in hopes of saving all peoples. We want all peoples and all tribes to hear about Jesus because we believe there's only one God out there. We don't believe in a, in a pantheon of gods like the Greeks do. You know, to the pagans that were living in Ephesus, they believed that their goddess was Artemis. Artemis was their god. They believed in, in the existence of all the other Greek gods, but Artemis was the god of their city. She's the one who took care of them. But if you, were to, if you were to ask them, well, what about those people in Corinth? What about those people in Athens? What about those, what about those people in Rome? Who's going to take care of them? Who's going to watch out for them? The Ephesians, they don't ask that question. They don't worry about that because they believe that those people have their own city gods to call out to. Let them turn to their own gods. They'll take care of them. But for Christians, that attitude is unacceptable. We believe there's only one God. 
The so-called gods of this world are not gods. And, and we're not denying their existence just to feel superior to other people. No, we, we make exclusive truth claims because we know that their so-called gods can't save them. And that's why our hearts break for them. We know that there is no other God than the God of Scripture that everyone must call out to for salvation. And this one God has sent only one mediator. And that is such an important point to make because you have to realize there are other monotheistic faiths out there that affirm only one God. And so why believe in the Christian God? Why not the God of Islam? Or what if this one God just gave us many different paths in order to find him? Well, Paul goes on to defend the uniqueness of the Christian God by explaining the uniqueness of the one mediator that he has sent, the man, Christ Jesus. In other words, only the Christian God can save because only he has sent a mediator like Jesus. Now, what's a mediator? Well, it's it's a go-between. It's someone who helps two disputing parties come together. Well, we need a mediator, the Bible says, because our sinfulness has created a barrier to God. It has created hostility between us and God. So we need a mediator. We need someone who can equally represent both parties to bring us to the same table. And this, my friends, is where Jesus stands ahead and shoulders above all other mediators because only Jesus is equally able to perfectly represent both parties because he is equally God and man. No other Savior can make this claim. No one even tries. And so how did he achieve this reconciliation? Well, Paul says, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, I know when we think of a ransom, we usually think of kidnapping, but in the first century, ransom was used in relation to slavery. And so when people would sell themselves into slavery, maybe perhaps in order to pay off a debt, the amount needed to pay that debt was called the ransom price. And so the Bible says that due to the guilt of our sin, We owe a great debt to God. And if that debt is not paid in this life, then we're going to have to suffer in the next. But our debt, we're told, is so large that there's no way you can pay it off in this life. And even even if we were to suffer for a million years in the next, it still wouldn't make a dent to pay it off. That is why the Bible calls our punishment eternal eternal punishment. But because God so loves the world, because he desires the salvation of all kinds of people, he has designed a way for our debt to be paid for in this life. What he did was he sent his son as a mediator to offer his life as that ransom price on our behalf to fully pay our debt, and to set us free. I hope, friends, that you see that our gospel is exclusive. It's exclusive in the sense that we affirm there's only one true God, and he has sent only one true mediator. But our our gospel 
is totally inclusive. It's so wide-armed, embracing in the sense that anyone, anyone can receive Jesus as their mediator. Salvation in Christ is not reserved for just some people, for just a particular kind of person. No one group of people is more deserving of salvation than another. Salvation in Christ is a free gift, and it's received by renouncing your sin and turning to Jesus in faith. And that is an invitation that you can give to anyone. That invitation is open to anyone, anyone here that has yet to receive Jesus. The invitation is open to you. I know the world thinks that believing in an exclusive gospel will make you arrogant and elitist, but it does actually just the opposite. It actually gives you a universal concern for all kinds of people. Because you believe salvation is exclusively found in Christ, and that compels you to pray inclusively for all kinds of people different than yourself to come to know Jesus as well. So we've talked about the target, the plea, the heart, and the burden of our missional prayers. Let's conclude by considering the end of our missional prayers. And by end here, I mean the ultimate goal, like the chief end, which once we reach, it will be the end of needing to pray these kinds of prayers. So what is the chief end? Well, it's nothing less than taking the truth of the gospel to all the nations to all the peoples, all the tribes of the earth. And once that end is met, once the nations hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, well, then it's the end of our mission. All of this, I believe, is alluded to in verse 7. If you look there, look in verse 7. For this, that is to, to give a testimony about Christ, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles, literally there, the ethnos, the nations. A teacher of the nations in faith and truth. So Paul's point is that he was appointed on a unique mission to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish peoples, of the world, which the Bible often just describes as the nations. And all of us Gentile Christians here, we are the product of Paul's apostleship. We are living proof that he wasn't lying in his testimony, that his mission truly was of God. So church, realize that this apostolic mission to the nations is still not complete. There are 7,035 unreached people groups out there today. That amounts to 3.14 billion people in the world who are condemned to an eternal hell without Jesus. 3.14 billion people who don't have self-propagating churches around them that are able to reach their own people with the gospel. 3.14 billion people who still need our assistance. That would mean that would mean for us as a church, that would mean for you 
as individual followers of Jesus to assist them. Now, most of these unreached peoples live halfway across the globe, and I believe some of you are being called by God to pack up your things and to go, to go to them and tell them about the one mediator that can save them from their sins. But you know, in a city like ours, there are unreached peoples halfway across town. So I think all of us, all of us have an active role to play, not just to pray, but an active role to play. Brothers and sisters, we have the awesome privilege of carrying on Paul's global, all nations, all-inclusive gospel mission. It'll require our time, our resources, our courage, our sacrifice, maybe for some even our lives. But our Lord is worthy of such committed devotion because he is worthy of such global praise. Father, may you take your word and work it deep in us, convicting us of our role to play in your mission. Give us your heart, O Lord. Help us to feel the burden of the lost who are dying without Jesus, dying without hope, facing eternal punishment in an agonizing hell. May these realities weigh deeply upon us. May they compel us, compel us to pray and compel us to act. O Lord, teach us what you want us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.